This episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Ascension, publisher of the first ever edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church with a specially designed Foundations of the Faith approach. Visit ascensionpress.com slash catechism to encounter the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my Pillar... Uh, sorry, you just distracted me there. Pillar co-founder... <laughs> Podcasting part. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings me bring <laughs> what distracted me is I've never seen a pillar shirt with long sleeves before. Oh, really? This is the first one I ever got. That's cool. I've never is it three quarter sleeves or or long sleeves? No, total long sleeves. I just have them rolled up because it's 80 degrees or 85 That's degrees in my so office. So cool. We'll put a link in our show notes to all, that shirt and all the pillar swag that you can get. Uh, because Ed has a cool pillar long sleeve shirt that I never knew existed. Okay, but I mean, by all means, people, please enjoy the swag. But I, I feel out of please subscribe and if it yeah, we'd rather it, you because subscribe. we we don't actually make any money off the swag, so we'd rather you subscribe. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar editor in chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. And uh, Ed, uh, aloha. How you doing, JD? I'm doing great. I am. Uh, Doing great because it is uh, Mary's birthday, the birthday of the Mother of God, and uh, that's cool, is it not? Uh, it is. I I'm a big fan of herself, obviously, and um, you know it is always a, it's a joyful day. It's a joyful Meat Friday. Uh, you know, lot, lots lots good to say about it. So I have been reading just while we've been talking here, uh, while we've been doing the show preliminary, which. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I have been reading a little bit about, because I didn't know anything about the Feast of the Nativity of the Mother of God. Um, do you know very much about it? I mean, she was born. We know where parents were, Anna and Joachim. Um, yes, right. Immaculate That's... Conception, all that. Like, But I I'm... was born and I'm not, uh, my birthday's not a liturgical feast. No, um, you're not the Theodicus. No. Uh, and she is. That's true. Uh, and so, now I'm going I mean, to tell you about the history of this feast because it is super interesting to me. I mean, is it, do we not? Is it not a liturgical feast? Is it not a major feast? Is it not a Meat Friday feast? Just because who doesn't throw a party, birthday party for their mom? I mean, sure, but every feast has an origin, right? I mean, well, the origin is she was born. Okay, but there was no, there was no. I'm going to tell you something, and this might blow your mind. Okay, there was no sacred liturgy on the day that the Blessed Mother was born. Well, of course, because Christ hadn't come yet. Oh, well, I feel like I'm being dense away. here, and I don't mean to be, and I apologize. J.D., what is the interesting thing you are trying to tell me, and I no, am unable totally to cool. anticipate? All I'm saying is every feast begins somewhere, right? Like at some right. point, the church begins celebrating a feast, right? Oh, I see. Okay, so yes. When did the church start celebrating the birthday of— What did you think I was saying? I, I don't I don't know. I I really—honestly, I <laughs> honestly, I just wasn't getting there fast enough. And again, I apologize. I wasn't trying to be obtuse. I just, you know— No, it's totally fine. It was just so confusing to me. Well, I'm, so, I'm a simple man, JD. I, I'm sometimes <laughs> unable to follow your your Socratic dialogue technique, and there's just not all that much in me to be drawn out. So sometimes you know, it doesn't. This work. happens to me a lot. We're recording right now what I think is the best season ever of Sunday School, which is a, a Bible study podcast brought to you by Pillar Media, and we've recorded a couple seasons. I honestly think that we're recording, and some of them are very good. Some of them are okay, and I'm just going to be honest about that. And that's largely on me. I don't think that I brought my A game in the Psalms season, and uh, and I feel badly about that. But we're recording right now what I think will be the best season of Sunday School. And part of the reason why I think it'll be the best is because 
I asked our executive producer, Kate Oliveira, to sort of join me in the classroom so that Kate and I both, you know, so the format of Bible study, Sunday school rather, is that Dr. Scott Powell, who's a great uh, scriptural theologian, sort of te- walks with us through a book of scripture. And um, and I asked Kate to sort of join me as the student, so to speak. Um, but Scott, Ed, I don't know how much you listen to that podcast, but Scott is super Socratic. He'll be talking and talking and talking, and then he'll be like, well, and then you know Obadiah – uh, uh, foretold um, which event in Jesus's life, and you're like, eh, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, and he's like, well, which event in Jesus's life was foretold by Obadiah? And you're like, yeah, I, I heard the question. I just you can't you can't imagine you that can't I know these two blood from a stone, man. I <laughs> right, exactly. sometimes you need to just pivot and be didactic. Just give me the information, <laughs> hammer it right, hammer me over the head with it. And that's what I am going to do, please. Uh, there are competing origin stories for the Feast of the Nativity of the Mother of God. Okay. I'm going to okay. – can I can I venture some guesses? Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with monastic community affiliated with John the Beloved. No. No? The no. Beloved Disciples? Disciples? The man who was told to take Mary into his house and make a place for her and said, behold your – and Christ said from the cross, behold your mother. He's not responsible, at least in part, at least in one rival tradition for – the beginning, celebrate the birthday of Our Lady? I mean... Epic fail by St. John. I, hmm. I'm i I'm honestly, I'm not sure how to continue a conversation with a person who just used the phrase epic fail. Well, too bad. <laughs> That's so unlike you. I, I'm trying, look, I'm... Did someone tell you that we need to sound more relevant using the, no, using the slang and vernacular of young people or something I like that? I get a lot of feedback on the show and the uh, it has it has become apparent to me through a series of casual social interactions with people that I'm meeting for the first time that apparently the impression I give off is that I'm somewhat stuffy, somewhat out of touch, <laughs> somewhat aloof. Um and as you have been finding out for the last 10 minutes, I guess, hard to talk to. No, not at all. And I don't I want I don't want people to think that I, you know, I I I like people. I'm a people person. I know you do. You're a people person. You're a people person people. You're you're much more of a hugger than I am. I am. I you you stiffen up like a frozen tuna if someone tries to get too close to you. By strangers or acquaintances. Or long standing business partners and long standing business partners for best friends. I you know, yeah, fine. Yeah. No, it's cool. Yeah. It's fine. No, I yeah. So I, you know, it may. I I have some of the feedback I've gotten has been to perhaps soften my edges a little. You know. Okay, so, so you're you saying no to, to the you're saying no to the trying to sound like the Twitter kids. You decided to do that with the phrase "epic fail." That's the thing they say. My it little sister is... uses that phrase, and she's very cool. When when did she last use it? Do you think? Um. I I have a memory of her saying it once. <laughs> was she perhaps lampooning others? I really can't tell. Her generation is very <laughs> ironic. Yeah, it's hard to understand when they're being sincere and when they're not. You see, now we've we gone from I was we... trying to be more approachable and in touch, and we've pivoted to, oh, the kids today, you just can't understand it. This is the opposite of what, <laughs> what I was trying to slang? achieve. <laughs> what with their memes and their gifts? I don't know. Ed, can we talk, please, about... Um, the uh, um, Feast of the Nativity of the Mother of God. I really wish you would. 
Okay. There are competing origin stories for the Feast of uh, the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, uh, and I find both of them interesting for different reasons. Uh, would you like first the um, historically interesting one or the fantastically interesting one? Which would you like first? Uh, I'll, I'll do um, salad, then steak. So yeah, give me the interesting one and then the very interesting one. Okay. So the earliest documentary evidence evidence of liturgical commemoration of the nativity of the mother of God is in Christian communities in Syria and Palestine in the beginning of the sixth century, shortly after the council of, well, I guess a generation or so after, or two generations after the council of Ephesus, which took place as you know, in the four thirties. And we have like maybe 60 or 70 years later, from that evidence of um, the liturgical celebration of the nativity of Mary, the mother of God and the emergence at the same time of hymns dedicated to Mary, the mother of God, and also um, basilicas dedicated to the blessed mother and churches dedicated to the blessed mother across Palestine and Syria. Why do you suppose that was there was a sort of flowering of Marian piety after the Council of of Ephesus? Uh, isn't that where they coined the term Theodicus? That's where they resolved the Nestorian controversy and where they affirmed the title Theodicus, Mother of God for the Blessed Mother, which is really a, a Christological confirmation, but one which also confirms the elevated status of the Blessed Mother as indeed the Mother of God herself. And it was, the consequence of that was a flowering of Marian piety um, in Jerusalem and its environs, uh, in Palestine and then in Syria. And I just think that's really quite cool that a theological truth was affirmed by the Council of Ephesus and it led to this sort of flowering of Marian piety uh, in, in across the region. That is very cool. I, I don't know that I'd call that fantastical, but... That's not the fantastical. Oh, okay. But I, I'm ready for the fantastical. Okay. This is a rival tradition, you say? Yeah, there are competing origins. So the, so the option one is and historically explicable and contextualized flowering of Marian devotion after a council which did much to which promote. Which affirmed yeah. mm -hmm. okay. the title of Mary as mother. got to say that's a strong contender. Option two. The Diocese of Angers in France, which is sort of northwestern France. Are you familiar with where one might find Angers? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. The Diocese of Angers in sort of northwestern France claims that it's sort of great saint, Saint Morelius, uh, who is responsible for much of the evangelization of um, what is now France, um, instituted the feast of the uh, nativity of the mother of God, Mary's birthday, um, as the result of a revelation had by uh, a, a Christian peasant in Angers. Saint Morelius apparently was told by a Christian peasant that on the night of September 8th, this man out in a field, heard angels singing in heaven and um, filling the sky with great joy and jubilation. And upon asking them, asking them the reason, they told him that they were rejoicing because the Blessed Virgin Mary was born on that night. Okay, I and have thus some began thoughts. the Diocese of Angers claims the feast of the Nativity of Mary, the Mother of God. Okay, I have some thoughts. Don't you like that one more? I I'm suspicious of the secondary one. Yeah, but don't you love it? I suppose, but I mean, I look. I don't, I don't want to give into sordid stereotyping here, uh, but the French aren't known for having 
ton of respect for their mothers generally. I mean, they tend to refer to them by and address them by their first names. They, you know, French mothers in turn, you know, tend to think it's a sign of weakness to tell their children they love them. You know, there, there, there's a lot of you know garlic insouciance in the family unit, from what I've understood. So I find it odd that they would be the recipients of this this wonderful feast. But maybe Our Lady keeps appearing to French people because you know she wants to heal what's broken. That's possible. It's possible. You know, in France, this is a particularly important feast for wine growers because um, Mary's birthday, or Mary Mass, if you will, is also known as the Feast of Our Lady of the Grape Harvest. And grapes are brought to the parish to be blessed. And then grape bunches of grapes are hung from the hands of the statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary following a sort of grape festival. Mm. Now, if you think that's interesting, let me tell you about the Sierra Malancar. It's a little neo pagan, but tell me about the Sierra Malancar. <laughs> it's, it's a little Dionysian cool, for my taste. But don't but, you think it's cool when we baptize our actually, sort of. You know what? I'm going to walk that back. I'm going to walk that back. Anyone who's allowed to hang their produce from the hands of the statue of Our Lady, it's winemakers because she did, you know, she was. She, yeah, she did the wine thing. She mm-hmm. did the wine thing. So I take that, I take it all back. Um, I'm going, I'm backing the French claim here. You are? Yeah. Council of Ephesus, okay. Syria, Palestine. Nah, probably not. I'm sure it was the French winemakers. Okay. Have now vote. let's talk about the Syro Malincar. Okay. Not to be confused you- for listeners with the Syro Malabar church of which we have spoken much. The Syro Malincar church, completely different history. You know, also a church sui iuris in the in communion with the See of Rome. But there are also Syro Malincar Eastern or, or Orthodox Christians, right? Yes. There are Syro Malincar Catholics and and there's relatively small minority of the sort of Syro Malincar tra- tradition, which is a sort of liturgical and patrimonial tradition of Eastern Christianity in India. Yes, and it, it stems as the name will no doubt tell you from missionaries that came from Syria. Uh the Syro Malincar have um have, I think it's fair to say, some historical affiliation with and roots in Nestorianism, which uh, was part of the reason why they've been, they were out and then in and then out and now back in again, uh, communing with the Catholic Church. Except it has been important over time for very many of the Cyril Malincar to affirm that they are no, that they, that they do not hold the Nestorian heresy. Yes, that is, that it's that important reason. for everyone to, to make that clear. Yeah. That they don't, yeah. And as you know, Ed, the Feast of the Nativity of Mary, Mother of God, probably emerged uh, as a as a liturgical feast in Syria and Palestine in the fifth century. Again, his century. his historical weight seems to be on the side of that one. <laughs> in India, among the Syro Malinkar, both Catholics and Orthodox, the Feast of the Nativity of Mary, Mother of God, is among the highest feasts in the Church. It's right up there with Easter and Christmas. There's an eight day octave of abstinence from meat and alcohol. Um, preceding this and then an eight-day octave of feasting beginning today on the Nativity of Mary with the Mother of God and going for the next eight days. It's a big deal. I want to go to that. Very I want to go to that too. That sounds awesome. India to India so badly. I We should do it. Well, yeah, we don't have the money for that kind of caper, but I want to go for an I want to go for a Marian octave feast with the Syro Malankars of in India. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah it sounds sounds pretty cool. And the thing is, I mean, let's be honest for a moment. An eight-day fast from meat in India is not much of a hardship. Like that is, I, I, my carnivorous credentials are fairly well accepted, I think, but I could eat, I can eat vegetarian in a good Indian restaurant and in India and be a totally happy man. I mean, there is, 
It's so good. Now, this is a diversion, and for people who don't like diversions, for people who don't like the banter, they surely don't like it when we sort of mix it up with the substantive conversation. But this is a diversion, but you had Indian food last night for your wedding anniversary. Uh, yeah, we did. You we did. Your wife we we Indian actually, Indian we tend to go out for Indian food. Uh, good, really good Indian food uh, for our anniversary. Uh, we do that most years. Uh, we've done it in London and in DC. I, we ha- the thing is, it's funny, in London when we go to our favorite Indian restaurant over there, which was um, our favorite because the food was incredible. Uh, it was also the only place that my wife's great aunt, who was the sort of family matriarch, would eat out. She she was convinced all other restaurant food was basically trash, and you know she had to make it at home herself from scratch, and otherwise you weren't getting the real stuff. But she would eat out there, and that was a very very shabby restaurant, um, but the food was just amazing. And we would go there and just order the whole menu, and that would be how we'd celebrate our anniversary. That's not open to us in DC, actually. If anyone listening to the show knows a really good local Indian restaurant in DC so that you don't have to go downtown and, you know, pay Michelin starred prices for a nice night out with your wife. I, I gratefully receive such recommendations. That would be wonderful. Um, but yes, yes, I did have Indian food last night. Yes, it was my anniversary. Okay. So going back, I just think that this, the reason I'm bringing up all this historical sort of, uh, and cultural stuff about the feast of the nativity of the Mary, of Mary, the mother of God is because I've just been thinking lately about the, the gift, I mean, you know, I don't want to sound overly, but um, I've just been thinking a lot about the gift of Marian piety and the unifying nature of Marian piety. Like, you know, clearly we know that Our Lady of Guadalupe becomes this unifying figure in the emergence of um, New World Catholicism. And I had no idea that the figure of Mary, the mother of God, is a unifying figure among Indian Christians. But indeed, like the Sira Malankar celebration of Mary, the mother of God, on, on her nativity, uh, is a celebration in which many other um, Indian Christians also participate. So, so Mary is this sort of unifying figure in in Indian Catholicism, and then of course you can say that that's replicated in so many other places. I really think you know there's so much talk right now among church leaders with regard to the synod on synodality and stuff like that. Um, there's so much talk about this problem that people identify as polarization. And so much belief that polarization can be overcome. So there's so, there's such a often a promise that like this notion of polarization, which is a kind of division, I suppose, can be overcome with these kind of technocratic solutions of sort of modes of dialogue and things like that. But I I think we make a huge and obvious mistake if we don't realize that the antidote to so-called pol- polarization is Marian piety and always has been in the life of the church. Like brothers and sisters come together for the sake of loving their mother. That's a family familial reality. And it's a, it's, I think a historically Christian reality, which continues to exist in Christian cultures. The only thing, one I, who can make siblings kiss and make up is mom. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, it just occurs to me that in, in an ongoing conversation about this thing, people call polarization. It seems like they're murdering to dissect natural Christian division and and thinking that they can apply some sort of programmatic solution to it when the real solution is something that we've known, you know, around the world for thousands of years, which is unity around the love of the Blessed Virgin Mother. Uh, you're right. And more to the point, the the latter has always worked. The former has never worked anywhere in or out of the church. Yeah, that's right. I kind of made, I kind of was talking about this with, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I went to DC and I was talking to Cardinal Anders Arborolius, who was, you know, I recruited into my C9, and he was talking about the challenge of uh, division in the church in Sweden. 
and um, the fact that the Swedish church is largely an immigrant church, that there are almost no ethnically Swedish Catholics and those who are converts. And he said they have this unusual experience of matriculating into a church, which is not culturally Swedish, you know, so they're sort of strangers in their own homeland when they, when they go to church. But then there's also kinds of various divisions over the fact that, um, over the differences between Arabic-speaking Christians and Eastern European Christians and a surprising number of Latin American Christians and then uh, a large number of Filipinos, all in Sweden. And and he said, you know, there's like division over which cultural group gets to use the Paris Hall at various times and things like that. And uh, if you remember this Church of Sweden bishop was there, this um, this um, a lady who's a bishop in the Church of Sweden. And I, the Cardinal was telling me about this and I said, it really sounds like Sweden needs a Marian apparition to bring you guys all together. And that Church of Sweden lady laughed hard um because she laughed at her mother or laughed in agreement she laughed at the recognition that marian apparitions tend to bring people together and at what i think she took as my cheeky suggestion that the cardinal perhaps ought to gin up a marian apparition to get people getting along with each other which was not exactly my intention i think it would be easier to persuade our lady to appear than to get the cardinal to gin one up but yeah to, to get that particular cardinal to gin up a marian apparition i think yeah that's that's right um but but on a purely pragmatic level, if you wanted to unify people, ginning up a Marian apparition, so to speak, is not uh, is not the worst way to go. No, although you shouldn't you shouldn't gin up you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't gin up fake ones, um, and you shouldn't try and make let's say disputed ones focal points because that can just lead to further division. Yeah, that's what do you have in mind? Magigoria. Oh, say more. No, I don't think I will. Well, I think you have to for the sake of our listeners. I now. don't. I don't. Medjugorje is a disputed uh, Marian apparition in the nation of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And um, many people have say they've experienced profound conversions there, but the church has consistently said that um, the alleged apparition at Medjugorje is not affirmed. And, uh, and so, but that's very interesting because there's division in the church over Medjugorje. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that points to one element of Marian piety, which is that Marian piety is always piety authentic and proper Marian piety is always piety in and from the heart of the church, that one can't be really devoted to Mary without being devoted to the heart and life of the church. Well, and also that, you know, and this is true of all sorts of Marian apparitions, the most important in in the history of the church, so things like Lourdes, uh, Guadalupe, that there's an apparition, there's an initial skepticism and testing by the church, but then a full embracing and all the graces Mm -hmm. that come from that. Um, so, so places that don't have that second part, I, 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 mm. but it is amazing because as much as there are things about Medjugorje to take pause about, there's also questions about, I know there are consistently, persistently questions raised about like some of the priests who have been involved in Medjugorje and their personal comportment and character and whether or not they've acted with integrity at various times. I know those questions have been raised, but it is amazing because despite like the, the, um, the various dubia which can be raised about Medjugorje and the various dubia which the church has raised about Medjugorje, like you can't deny the fact that people have had conversions there. And I don't no, even know if but, I know what to make of that. Like, oh, I, what do you, I don't do find you, that particularly hard because if you, you look, if you, there, there, look, leaving aside questions at the level of the high, at the top tier of Medjugorje and organizers and initiators and so on, at the basic level of pious pilgrims, who I would note are doing that despite the fact that the local bishops have continually said, please don't make this place a place of pilgrimage. Place of public pilgrimage or something like that, right? But nevertheless, the one thing we know about Our Lady is nobody goes to her with a sincere heart and sincere attention and walks away empty-handed. 
So I, I don't actually find it all that difficult to believe that you could have, hypothetically, a completely spurious claim of a Marian apparition, which nevertheless draws sincere piety and devotion from the faithful who themselves have a sincere prayerful encounter with Our Lady and receive graces in return. Like our mom doesn't doesn't say, oh, I, I, I'm glad you've come to see me, but you know, the, the wrong person referred you. So nothing for you. Like that's not how, right. that's not how our, our lady rolls. So I, no, I don't actually find that particularly hard to, to understand or, um, or, or sort of make sense of. I just be nice if it were, you know, be nice if we didn't have the sort of the apparent contradiction. It would be nice if we could just change. Our lady's been all over the place. There's lots of places where you can go to mark Marian devotions that the church fully endorses and promotes and just consider those. <laughs> okay. Well, happy birthday, blessed mother. We love you, mom. Ed doesn't want, Ed, Ed's got strong opinions. Shockingly. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by Ascension, the publisher of the first ever edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, to have a specially designed Foundations of Faith approach. And what this means is that Ascension has taken the Catechism of the Catholic Church and published a version of it that offers you all this like kind of supplementary material. They've color-coded it so that you can find different sections, you know, very easily. And then they've created these boxes with kind of like um sources so that you can see where the things which are in the catechism come from and um and then they have kind of put in uh, like charts and labeling that kind of help readers guides to the catechism so this ascension um foundations of faith approach to the catechism aims to make the catechism a much more accessible text with a lot of help to read through it and to understand sort of the foundations of the faith which are which are contained within uh, the catechism that's right i mean the two of the most important books in the faith are the Bible, obviously, and the catechism. And while a lot of people do a lot of scriptural study and, and things like that, not a lot of people are encouraged to or have the time or the resources to actually study the catechism and understand where the truth and the beauty of everything that the church teaches in there comes from. And that is what this edition from Ascension aims to help answer. You know, integrating this foundations of faith approach, presenting the answers in a clear and easy to understand way that everyone can read and comprehend. Um, and it is, you know, it is, you know, they call it first ever. I did, so far as I'm aware, this is really unique. I haven't ever seen I'm not it. aware of a sort of study version of the catechism like this that includes timelines of scripture, that includes tables and charts. I mean, all of the things that um, if you have taken theology classes and you've sort of had the, the catechism as a touchstone text, then you might have gotten handouts or on the board sort of reflections on the on what the catechism is doing that make it easier to read. But if you haven't taken those kinds of courses, this, uh, this Ascension edition of the catechism aims to sort of give you in the text itself um, all of the things which can help you to better unpack, to better make sense, and to better, I think, appreciate the gift and richness of the catechism. I think a lot of people think the catechism is just a text that just sort of like is, you know, that it just sort of came out of nowhere, but it didn't. It came out of a ton of work and um, a ton of, there's actually like a long backstory to how the editors of the catechism put it together and what what they were aiming to do. And, um, and it really is, I think, often an underappreciated tool for a s- systematic approach to the faith that sort of allows you to see all elements of the church's teaching in one sort of comprehensive thing. And this Ascension edition of the Catechism aims to kind of make all that clear to someone who picks up the Catechism to read it. That is absolutely right. So you can get a copy of this 
very unique, very cool, very interesting study version of the catechism uh, by going to ascensionpress.com slash catechism. Yeah, you should do it. Ascension edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church with the Foundations of Faith Approach. Ascensionpress.com slash catechism. And we're back, Ed. How you doing? Uh, I'm I'm okay. That was a strange that was a strange uh that was a strange first half. Cause it felt like there were some things you wanted to say and you didn't fully say them. And do you want to talk about it some more? I mean, do you have some things on your mind? What I wanted to do was talk about the unifying sort of um cultural the, the unifying cultural force of devotion to the Blessed Mother, and uh, and some which is something I think is often unappreciated. Which I I, I thought the conversation was going to go in the direction of that w- one would hope that the synod on synodality, which seems to be focused on sort of this uh, among other things this motif of polarization, would encourage Marian piety and devotion, and that maybe the synod on synodality would even be an example of a sort of Marian gathering, but we, we seem to go in a lot of other directions. So I wonder, but you seem to have a lot to say. So before we move on to other topics, I just want to give you the floor. Oh, that's kind of you. But no, I, I, I would say though, I, it would be really nice if if what you say came to pass, that if, this, if the meeting of the synod were placed somehow under the auspices of Our Lady, and if there was a concerted effort to make it a Marian celebration that, you know, I, I know Pope Francis has said in recent days that, you know, this isn't going to be a sort of open windows parliament, that it's going to be private, uh, you know, not a lot of journalistic access. I'd put an asterisk next to that because I <laughs> I have some skepticism about what that means and what that will lead to. But um, it, it would be really nice if it was convened not as a sort of weird confederation of meetings within meetings within meetings within meetings, but had a had a prayerful quasi-liturgical Marian devotion to it. I think that would help frame it a lot more. I think you're right. I think it would lead to a great deal of Christian charity and the exchanges on various And topics. I think that's the actual answer to the questions which it raises. How does the church become uh, a body which better prays together and discerns the will of God together? I think by becoming um, more devoted together to the mother of God. I think where you find devotion to Mary, you often find an antidote. I'm not trying to be pious about this. You often find very realistically, an antidote to clericalism, an antidote to sort of apathy, an antidote to sort of division, because it's certainly my experience that like actual love for the mother of God as a mother helps to overcome some of those things. Right. And I mean, one of the phrases that has been thrown around in the synodal process so far, often by sort of, you know, drafters of the impenetrable preparatory texts is census fidei. Um, And this has been a you could say misunderstood, or I would say misrepresented and deliberately abused uh, term. But it's worth noting that the biggest, most joyful, most authentic expressions of the actual census today have involved Our Lady. Yeah, the Immaculate Conception, for example, is is a yeah, feast that right. exists because of the overwhelming and perennial popular piety and belief manifested by the entire Christian faithful, from the lady in the pews to the Pope on his throne. That you know, the yeah. whole church comes together to announce with total conviction our belief that Our Lady was assumed into heaven, and and great. And you know, I think you're exactly right that you know, if we're looking for something that really answers the synodal calls and questions that Pope Francis has proposed, um, devotion to Our Lady seems to be the answer. Yeah. Otherwise, a- absent that, I mean, it's possible that the synod on synodality could be what you might call an epic fail. I see what you did there. <laughs> 
But with that, it may be what the kids would call the bomb diggity. Uh, that one I haven't heard before. You've never heard the phrase bomb diggity? No. They didn't have that in England? No. Oh, well, you missed out. Okay. Well, having talked about that, Ed, uh, we have a couple of things that we would like to talk about now. But one of them is um, the bishops of Ukraine, the Ukrainian bishops, the synod of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, who are gathered in Rome this week for a meeting. Um, synods in Eastern Catholic Churches. So the Catholic Church is a communion of 23 or 24 now um, churches with their own hierarchy and their own patrimonial customs and, and traditions and liturgical practices and even sort of theological emphases, um, all of whom are in communion by virtue of their communion with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. Um, and one of those Catholic churches is the Ukrainian Catholic Church. And the Ukrainian Catholic Church is governed, um, in addition to its submission to the Pope, by a major archbishop, Archbishop Shevchuk. Um, and, uh, and, but also in Eastern Catholic churches, the Synod of Bishops, which is to say the body of bishops together, the body of the bishops who constitute the, the hierarchy of the church, have a governing role that we don't have an, an analog to in the, in the Latin Catholic Church, but they have a role of, law, of lawmaking and policymaking and even administrative governance that we, we really don't have an, a, a similar parallel to in the, in the Eastern Catholic Church, or excuse me, in the, in the Latin Catholic Church. I mean, so it's closer the, to what we would understand as a particular council. It's closer to what we would understand as a perfect, particular council, which but is but it's the, closer yeah. to the bishops of the church regularly gather in order to exercise um, administrative and, and legislative leadership in 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 solidum with with each other. Yes. So the Ukrainian Catholic bishops are having their synodal assembly right now, which again is not synod how we talk about it, which means get together and talk about stuff, but get together, talk about stuff, and then make deliberative decisions. They're having it in Rome, and while they are in Rome, they got together with the Pope and they told the Pope. Hey, the way you've been talking is upsetting our people. Yes. Ed, do you want to comment on uh, that? Well, Pope Francis, in um, one of his many public statements on the war in Ukraine, uh, also issued a call to the Russian people to live up to what he basically styled as their historic nobility. And he name checked a couple of very important historical figures in Russian history and in the Russian national psyche, including Peter the Great. Uh, and Catherine, and um, they are, I think it would be fair to say, bloodthirsty tyrants who persecuted their own people, who butchered the people of other countries, including Ukraine, and were also, you know, pretty repressive and violently so against Catholics. And so the bishops of the Ukrainian church mentioned to the Pope that it was it was not helpful. Uh, in the context of the Russian invasion of their country, uh, to issue a call to the people of Russia to live up to the historical legacy of tyrannical czars and czarinas who have historically invaded Ukraine. And um, I think their point was well taken. Um, the Pope Francis had actually previously, I think, on the flight out to Mongolia last week, um, this was brought up to him. This is before the Ukrainian bishops met in Rome and, and spoke to him, but nevertheless, the, the comments had already sort of made made some people upset by then. And Pope Francis said that, you know, he, he accepted that perhaps his his turns of phrase were, I think, not happy. It was an yeah. unhappy turn of phrase. And he clarified that, you know, basically he knew just enough Russian history to make a mess. Um, that, yeah. you know, he'd learned about these things in school as a child, and he was just trying to appeal to the noble soul of the Russian people and accidentally appealed to the worst parts of their 
culture and history. Which is not the first time that that has happened in recently. I mean, you wrote about this a little bit in your newsletter today. Uh, no. Um, Pope Francis seems to be making a bit of a a thing about trying to name check um, giant cultural figures in the peoples he's speaking to and and I think it's questionable. Like he, when he was in Mongolia, one of the he referenced the Pax Mongolia as you know this Elysian time in human history when all religions were tolerated and there was no conflict, and you know the the great and benevolent overlordship of Genghis Khan, right. the greatest mass murderer and serial rapist in history. Like I, I mean, I get it that he's a big deal in Mongolian history, and they've got a giant statue of him. But you know, I, ew. Yeah, they're. Yeah, there's a way that you cannot do that. There's a way you cannot do that. You can appeal for world yeah. peace without appealing to Genghis Khan, surely. Yeah. Um, so that that was inelegant. Uh I I mean I don't let's be clear, I don't I don't think Pope Francis is a is a fancier of genocide. Um he is No, I don't think so either. I, I think he is, as he has said about his remarks concerning Peter the Great. Um you know he's he's just trying to appeal to the the cultural memory and best aspirations of the people to whom he's addressing it is unfortunate that you know that he's picking the figures that he is uh which is a shame and i, I again i don't i don't think there's any question about the pope's good intentions here but you know he's th- this is the thing about being pope is it's a big microphone and um when you get it slightly wrong in terms of the context like this then it can it can be very upsetting for people and and that and that's a shame because again you know what what is the pope actually trying to do with all of this is he's actually trying to say we live in a in a conflict riddled world where people are dying where the innocent are suffering um we don't want that world we want people to aspire to something better something more peaceful mm-hmm. um, something more closely resembling you know the kingdom of heaven and and that's the pope's job is to appeal for that everywhere to be a sort of global roving ambassador for peace for sure all of that um i, I yeah I, I i do hope though the pope will sort of drop his his appeals to history and at, at least as he's been making them recently yeah i mean it's kind of like i, I mean he he, he, he it's funny because he reined it back he when he was in mongolia he was also you know, doing his sort of shout out to the chinese people and encourage them to be good Christians and good citizens, which people kind of lost their minds about. And I didn't understand because, you know, that there's that, a history there. And yeah. well, there's a history there, but I mean, you know, don't be wrong. The Chinese are, the Chinese government is not great. It's bad. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a genocidal oppressive regime. No one is saying yeah, CCP so anything great. other than bad, but you know, right. so was the Roman empire and Christ said, render unto Caesar. You know, he's not saying, and, and something you know, which is totally, uh, yeah. There, he's not saying something which is totally contrary to what the what the catechism says. No. If one had a, a really great edition of the catechism, one could check that themselves. For example. And I mean, it's also, you know, the Bishop Chow of Hong Kong got a lot of flack for encouraging um, Chinese Catholics to love their country, um, mm-hmm. to be in that sense patriotic uh, earlier this year when yeah, he made a right. visit to Beijing and everyone kind of lost their minds. And he, this is one of the things I like about Bishop Chow, um, is you know, rather than just sort of, you know, ducking the controversy, he just gave a long interview where he explained what he meant. And he said, that doesn't mean yeah. kowtowing to the civil authority. It means standing up to yeah. them when you have to, but it also means right. understanding that being Chinese and Catholic means being both Chinese and Catholic and loving your nation, loving your people, loving your society and being a 
being a part of that and mm-hmm. a positive contributor to all of that. And I, I thought that was great and refreshing. And so I, I sort of heard the Pope's remarks in context. And actually when people were saying, oh, this is all of a piece, he's, you know, he's praising Peter the Great and he's praising Genghis Khan. Now he's telling Chinese Catholics to be good citizens. I actually, that was interesting. Like, no, the real analog would have been if um, Pope Francis had gone from Peter the Great to Genghis Khan to say, and, you know, live up to the best act, you know, the best aspirations of Mao Zedong's permanent revolution. Like that would have been bad. I would, that right. I, I, like that would have been like, no, no, let's revisit. Right. But he didn't do that, which I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the, the Vatican's policy, um, on China under Pope Francis has come in for a lot of criticism. It has a lot of very strident critics. I am one of them, if I'm being honest. Uh, but I, I've never accused them of being naive. I don't think. I think they're mis- I think they misjudge a lot. I think they get the balance of probabilities wrong. I think they offer the benefit of the doubt to the Chinese government and presume, or at least insist, they are presuming good faith where there clearly is none. But I don't think they. I, I think they do choose their words very carefully about these things, and I think it was telling that when Pope Francis said, "Be good citizens," he's speaking into a reality that the church is having to live with in China, which is that the Chinese government's stated policy is that religion is an agent of civil subversion. And there is no difference between being religious and being a terrorist effectively. Uh, so I, I think when the Pope says something to Chinese Catholics, like be good citizens and Catholics can be good citizens, that's not an, that's neither an unreasonable thing to say. Um, and I certainly don't think it's an unhelpful thing for him to say. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, I think you're right that the, that it was that the good citizens remark in Mongolia to the Chinese was, was well was uh, thought out was planned and was part of a broad campaign on the part of the Holy See to remind Beijing that the purpose of Christianity is not to subvert civil government. You know, and I uh, credit where it's due. When we were having this conversation last week, you said, "Did I think the trip to Mongolia was going to be all about China?" And I sort of looked at you blank, like I hadn't thought of that. Um, you were right. <laughs> the, watching the trip to Mongolia, I, I was like, "Jay's entirely right. This is this is all about China." This is absolutely all about China. So you know some stuff about ecclesiastical affairs, you know. You do. You're you're an astute <laughs> observer thereof, and see so, things that are hidden, you know, to the to the dim and cloth covered well, eyes. So of that raises like the me. question. I mean, that raises the question: it, it, Is the so that that remark, which was controversial and part of you, you raise as kind of part of a triptych of controversial international global affairs remarks lately? Um, if that remark was um, intentional. Are the other ones, the other references, were they merely faux pas on the part of the Pope, the Genghis Khan thing, and the Peter the Great, or Peter the Second and Catherine the Great thing? Like, were they merely, like, sort of, was the Pope just off script and not thinking through the implications of this? Or what is the Holy See trying to, you know, the Holy See has so many diplomatic aspirations that I, or, or peacemaking aspirations that I think are. I think the Holy See often hopes to be a, a sort of global peacemaker, well beyond its actual capacity to be a, a global peacemaker. And I think that the Holy the, the Holy See often thinks that people will listen when the Church urges them to sit down and resolve international conflict, because I think they perceive that the Church has, in diplomatic circles, a kind of moral credibility that it doesn't have among secular, um, s- secular and 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 largely a religious. Um, uh, uh, nation, nation states in their diplomatic communities, but was was do you think the Pope was trying to signal something with that Peter the Great stuff, and now he's walking back, or do you think this is just the case of uh, an older person who was kind of caught up in the moment and didn't appreciate how this would be perceived? Uh, I don't. I don't think there's no question in my mind that the 
Peter the Great comment is a completely different animal to the be good citizens comment to the Chinese. I mean, the latter is definitely a scripted moment. Like it, he yeah, didn't just Chinese find himself on the altar with Cardinal Tong on one side mm-hmm. and um, Bishop Chow on the other and say, Oh, I just happened to have the most recent two bishops of yeah. Hong Kong here. I, while yeah, I, well, no you know, that was, that was a very carefully staged moment complete with picture, you know, all of that. So, so that I, I, I think, I mean, look, the Peter, the great comment, which the Pope, I, I think with genuine humility, kind of walked back on the plane and said, I didn't really know what I was talking about when I was referencing those people. And I'm sorry. And, and I think that's, you know, that's good. One of the great things, one of the great virtues of a Christian leader is humility. And I think good for him for that. Uh, so no, I don't, I don't think that name checking Peter and Catherine were, were sort of deliberate scripted moments by the Pope. I think that was him, as he said, sort of reaching into his memories of things covered in grade school history. Uh, but I mean, it, it should be said that Pope Francis personally and the Vatican under him have been very, very warm and very both sidesy uh, to Russia in the course of the entire Ukrainian conflict. And this is not the first, or I would even argue the most egregious example of offending the Ukrainian nation, the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian Catholics, the Ukrainian Catholic bishops. You know, these these complaints are almost, you know, three, four times a year now, whether it's having a sort of Russian mother co-carry the cross during the Stations of the Cross at the Colosseum for Holy Week or, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and on the one hand, I don't say I don't agree with it. Like there's there is a right and a wrong. When 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 Russia invades Ukraine, abducts thousands upon thousands of children, annexes territory, butchers civilians, takes a, a Genghis Khanish approach to sort of wiping out entire towns and villages. Um, there's not two sides to that conflict. Uh, and I think, you know, the the suggestion that, you know, Pope Francis has seemed to flirt with on more than one occasion about, you know, well, NATO was knocking on its door. And it's like, you know, uh, that mm, I, I can't side with that. Uh, on the other hand, I part of me was just like maybe I just don't understand the strategy. That's the thing is I don't understand what the Vatican's playing for in all of this. Like they've they've gotten to themselves to the point where I mean they keep saying you know the Pope has put Cardinal Zuppi in as his sort of you know personal peace ambassador. Um, and wants him involved in all of this, but I mean, the, the the timeline of this is the Pope Francis personally and the Holy See have gone from the most credible figures and voices for peace just prior to the Russian invasion, where you recall the Ukrainian president and the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian bishops were begging Pope Francis to come to Kiev and saying, you know, if the Pope is here, the Russians won't invade. You know, please, Pope Francis, we're begging you, come, come, come. And it's gone from that to the point. It's like I don't know that the Ukrainians would have him at this point if he wanted yeah. to go. And so I, you know, at this point, I, I mean, if the if the idea is well, they're continuing to try to appeal to the the more noble traditions and better instincts and broader humanity of the Russian people in the hopes of getting them to you know getting them to some kind of negotiating table. Like okay, but you know. You, how are you going to get the Ukrainians there at this point? And I, I don't know. I just don't understand it. As as diplomatic strategy, I don't understand it. Yeah, I I I want to kind of come back to to 
one of the points that you made there, I'm not sure I understand the diplomatic strategy either, but I wanted to come back to one of the points that you made there because you said that the Pope seems to be walking back the Peter the Great comments and seemed to be apologetic in response to the Ukrainian bishops saying that this had hurt their people. But have you actually seen the comment from Cardinal Paroline to the Ukrainian bishops in response? No, the, the walking back thing was from the, the in-flight press conference going out to Mongolia, I think. I haven't seen Cardinal Paroline's response to okay, so Paroline said after the bishop so it was just this week that the bishops yeah it was Wednesday that they met that, yeah. Yeah, that they, they told the Pope that he had been hurtful and so Paroline said um he he sort of cataloged some of the things that he thinks the Pope has done to express solidarity with the Ukrainian people and then he said in the face of repeated and significant gestures it would be unfair to doubt his the Pope's affection for the Ukrainian people and his effort not always understood and appreciated to help bring an end to the ongoing tragedy and ensure a just and stable peace through negotiation. I found this response fascinating, Ed, did, because that did he is call, not, I'm sorry, did he call the Ukrainian bishops and people ungrateful? Yes. Paroline, after the Ukrainian <sighs> bishops told the Pope, I, I, I'm surprised you read this, after the Ukrainian bishops told the Pope, hey, the way you've been talking about the war has been hurting our people and discouraging them because you're the, you know, uh, vicar of Christ on earth, Paroline told them, in the face of the Pope's repeated and significant gestures, it would be unfair to doubt his affection for the Ukrainian people and his effort, not always understood and appreciated, to help bring an end to the ongoing tragedy. And this part's super interesting. And ensure a just and stable peace through negotiation. Well, the Ukrainians are saying, whether you agree with them or not, the Ukrainians are saying, look, we're not interested in the kind of negotiation, which means we capitulate to the Russians and give them a part of what we believe to be our sovereign territory. And half a million um, of our children. Yeah, and half a million of our children, which have been, uh, who have been um, taken into Russia. Um, the, there are a growing number of people in the international community who say, look, Ukrainians, U Ukraine's uh, expectation of fighting until it has maintains what it perceives to be its territorial integrity is not realistic. And the Ukrainians should, um, capitulate and agree to cede some of their territory to Russia because you can't just continue a war forever. And that is a political judgment. And, um, you know, there are people who think, no, the Ukrainians should fight until they win according to their own terms of winning they've been invaded here and they have the moral they have moral legitimacy in that and i think there are even people who make it who are making sort of just war judgments and say the ukrainians probably don't have a realistic who, people who make the argument i'm not making it, but people who make the argument the ukrainians don't have a realistic chance of winning and that's one of the criteria for just war and therefore they have some moral obligation to reach a negotiated peace yeah, well, those all of people... that are prudential judgments for all of that are prudential judgments pro which properly belong to the Ukrainian people through their civil government. The Pope, you know, wants to make peace. And the Pope, again, the Holy See wants to have this diplomatic role. And part of that is effectively to take sides and to tell the Ukrainians you need to, um, as Paralene did just here, we, you need to sit down at the negotiating table with the people who the Ukrainians regard as their invaders. Uh, that might be, you know, you might say, okay, well, the Holy See and the Ukrainian government are at sort of politically different places on this. But the beginning part of this, it would be unfair to doubt the Pope's affection for the Ukrainian people and his effort not always understood and appreciated to help bring an end to the ongoing tragedy. I don't think it's, it is surprising to me for the Holy See to say, hey, when the Pope did this thing where he had the Ukrainian and the Russian share the stations of the cross with each other and you guys were all hurt, um, if you doubted his affection for the Ukrainian people as a result of that, that you're not being fair to him. He he obviously had it best. It's, it, it, and if you don't appreciate and understand what the Pope is trying to do for you, even against sort of your stated will as a you know as, as the one who's competent to make a judgment about just war, it, it's it's. Um, I do not think that this statement, when it circulates in Ukraine, will 
seem to have been responsive to what the bishops have raised. It seems no, to be uh, need to lecture the bishops and turn it back on them. Seems to basically say people were offended. Move on. Yeah, this is this is this is in marriage. You know, you get in an argument with your wife and you say, "I'm sorry that you don't appreciate how hard I work as a husband." I mean, that is not a validation of her experience or feelings whatsoever, is it? No. Um, no, that is that. What they need in Ukraine it is an apparition, because I don't know what's going to give them ecclesial unity other than that. I I had not read those comments by Cardinal. No, that it's is, really those quite are what I would call regrettable. Yeah, fighting, they're not fighting words, but they're lecture words. They're um, they're. How, I would call them undiplomatic and patronizing, but yeah, I think the Ukrainian bishops will probably call them something like that. Yeah, um, not publicly. Um, but I think the Ukrainian bishops have been in this very difficult place where they have felt that the they you know, have felt. I'm, I don't want to just go off on one here, but what the heck? It's Friday afternoon. Cardinal Paraline has, I, I would say, it is a hallmark of Cardinal Paraline's approach to to diplomatic conflict areas uh, where Christians are suffering. That his this sounds very much like. Che, che persecutioni. Yeah, right? exactly. What persecution, see, what persecution? Yeah, okay. The Chinese bishops uh, of you know the mainland are being thrown in prison, and seminarians are being rounded up, and churches bulldozed, and you know, che persecutione. We're trying to do some diplomacy here. You guys need to just you know bite your lip. Yeah, like there actually was an interview, and the che persecutione was an offhand comment he made um, to a gaggle of journalists after a speech. But like there was another interview that he gave um, that followed the the unsigned letter from the secretary of state on um cleric clerics being encouraged to sign up to the chinese patriotic catholic association but acknowledging their right and conscience not to do so since doing so would effectively require them to make either a jesuitical reservation of conscience or to you know commit heresy um and I remember Cardinal Perry, and he said basically, like, yes, he kind of had one of these, you know, got testimonies. Well, yes, there will be some suffering by Chinese Catholics, but, you know, that's just the cost of doing business effectively. And it's like, you know what? I, 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 it, it's a cheap shot at people who have to do high level diplomatic negotiations at the level of the Cardinal Secretary of State or, you know, the foreign minister of any government to say, you know, well, it's all right for you and your plush office. But what about the people on the ground? But in this case, you know, Cardinal Perrin is kind of making a thing of this. I was like, you know, yeah. well, I, these little people on the ground keep complaining. Why are these Ukrainians complaining? The Pope is working hard. Yeah. I, yeah. Right. Like, you know, have <laughs> the idea that you need to ask the people whose villages are being burned and whose people are being raped and tortured that, you know, you, you're going to sort of cluck and wag your finger at them and say, you don't. You people just need to have a little patience with, you know, all that, you know, the big boys are trying to do up here. It's like, oh. So I think that, I mean, I expect that the Ukrainian bishops are going to bite their tongues, swallow hard, and continue to express unity with the Pope because- Well, because that's a matter honestly, of theology and ecclesiology. What else can they do? The Pope is the Pope. Um the, the Pope is the Pope. I know that Shevchuk believes that the Pope is the Pope. I know that Shevchuk wants to be a faithful Catholic. I know he believes that it is possible to be at odds with the Pope over matters of prudential judgment and still accept him as the Roman pontiff. And I think that Shevchuk probably knows, and the Synod of Ukrainian Bishops probably know, that coming back to the Pope and saying, um, 
what? <laughs> we should be grateful for what is not going to be fruitful. So I think no. the Ukrainian bishops have said what they wanted to say. And by the way, in 2019, when the American bishops were discontented that the Holy See had not um, issued yet its report on McCarrick or, to their mind, addressed sufficiently some of the issues which had arisen in the clerical sexual abuse crisis of 2018, there was a proposal that the Bishops' Conference of the United States should um, express those concerns to the Holy Father that they had a desire to see justice resolved on these things. And it, that proposal was shut down on the floor of the conference by a cardinal who said it would seem disloyal to the Roman pontiff to, um, to, to raise concerns about his leadership. Although they weren't raising the, the proposal was not to raise concerns with his leader. The proposal was to exhort the Holy Father in pious and filial terms to to encourage the Holy to, Father to do do more, take more seriously. Yeah, right. And it was said that that would seem to be disloyal. I think that if the Ukrainian bishops, after the kind of um, uh, "how dare you" that they have just gotten from Paroline, continue to express their fidelity to the Pope, it will be they who have given a lesson to. Episcopates around the world about what it actually means to be loyal to the Pope, that one can raise a concern in fraternity and um, because the Christian faithful have the right to make known their needs to their sacred pastors, and that if one doesn't get anywhere, uh, one doesn't change the fact that one is a Catholic and therefore accepts the pontificate of their own pontiff. I, I think that much more witness of loyalty will be given in how the Ukrainian bishops respond right now than will be given in the silence of the American bishops in 2019, the elective silence of the American bishops in 2019. I would agree with that. But it will be hard for them. I suspect that though they are Catholics and they will say we're hurt by how the Pope and Paralene have responded to our concerns on this matter for prudential judgment. But, you know, that is, um, again, we've talked many times about the fact that um, uh, very many people in the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, probably us included, had such an outsized notion of the Petrine ministry that it was hard for us to imagine sort of strong disagreement with the Pope on prudential matters. Now, I disagreed with Benedict XVI when he said that um, sub subjective faith is necessary, could might be necessary, that the subjective disposition of faith might be necessary to validly contract marriage. I thought that was nuts, and I believe that we've talked about that before. Yes. And I think most people can say, well, they disagreed with the Pope about his, most people now will say whether they had this sense at the time or not, that they disagreed with John Paul II on his willingness to sort of accept, um, you know, any charismatic leader of any kind of group and give them ecclesiastical legitimacy without doing due diligence. But at the time, uh, still, many, I think many, many Catholics had a sort of outsized sense of the, of the parameters of the Petrine office. And um, here we're reminded that it's actually historically normal that the bishops of a country might be at odds with the Pope over his temporal judgments regarding the future of warfare in Europe, that this is very common and that ecclesiastical communion doesn't depend upon lockstep agreement with regard to prudential judgments like that. And there's some liberation in that, that, um, that one can have filial piety for the Pope while at the same time recognizing that that doesn't mean sort of lockstep unity on these matters of prudential judgment. This is, just, again, historically normal. Again, we, we could use a Marian apparition. We could use an apparition pretty bad. Happy birthday, Mary. Apparition time. If you'd like to, if you'd like to show yourself, we, we, we sure would like to see you. 
We should, I think an, appar- an apparition in Kiev would probably go a long way to addressing some of these things, don't you think? Uh, yes. Yes, or in Rome. Yeah, or in Rome. All right. Well, we'll be back next week to talk about that and very many other things. This episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Ascension, the publisher of the first ever edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church with a specially designed Foundations of the Faith approach. Visit ascensionpress.com slash catechism to encounter the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon, and our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. We appreciate her so much. You know something? What? We we just ran out of time this week, but I really wanted because you you went camping last weekend. I did. Oh, I for what do you want to know about camping? A lot. And you're going camping again this week. I am going camping again this week. Okay. This so week here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. But I could tell you. Did I tell you that I broke the car? No. I stop. <laughs> stop. Stop. No. Let me tell you this no, story because no, no, I should no, no, tell no, you all. No. 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 Stop. I have an idea. What we're going to do next week? We'll talk about whatever it is that happens next week, and I'm sure it'll be great. Next week we're doing a bonus episode, and I want camp chat. Yeah, we're doing a bonus episode next week. We will have camp chat, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser. Okay. So we brought our canoe camping, and uh, you know I put it on the car and all that. We took it up, no problem. We went to a beautiful place, one of the best camping trips I've been on in a long time. Really beautiful place. Brought our canoe, took it up on the roof, no problem. I put it up there, you know, whatever. Well, we take it off so we can get in the back of the car. You know, on Friday we take it off so we can get in the back in the at, get to the back of the car, take stuff out of the car, blah blah blah. The canoe's next to the car. Then Saturday morning, I got to put the canoe back on the car because we're going to drive to a beautiful, a stunningly beautiful um, lake. I'll never tell you where it is, but a stunningly beautiful lake where we're going to spend the day. And and to get to the to the kind of beach that we're going to spend the day on, we've got a canoe there. We've got to put everybody in canoes and portage them or whatever, traverse them across the lake and and um, with all our stuff. And because this is a kind of not very accessible place. So it's going to be cool. So um, as I'm putting the canoe on the car, there's this guy, a really nice guy, friend friend of mine. But this guy's watching me put the canoe on the car. And um, Are you doing this your, a, yourself on your own? Yeah. And your friend is just watching you? Well, he was Struggle to put a canoe into no, which you're going to fit your wife and three children. Thinking the guy was willing to help, right? This is the thing is the guy was willing to help. But he also, you could tell, I could tell, I felt that he was a little bit suspicious of my way of putting the canoe on the car. And so a couple of times he said, hey, you want, you want a little help? You want a suggestion? And Ed, I got belligerent because I got prideful. And I said, no, it's fine. And then Kate came over and said, I don't think that's how you did it yesterday. And I said, it is definitely fine. Get in the car. <laughs> well, oh, oh, because I just, th- this thing was happening oh, where I, my pride was wounded. the wind there, my brother. Right. This thing was happening where this guy had knew how to do it. My perception, my pride, I hadn't had a lot of coffee. I didn't sleep on my pride was wounded. This guy was going to tell me how to put my canoe on my car, you know, this kind of and thing. Then you told your wife to get in the car. That's... Well, not like that. I just said, no, 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 it's fine. Let's get in the car. You know what I mean? It's not like I said, you know, get in the car, lady. That, that That's not the point of the story. But I did I'll say ask to her, her about that fine. later. Maybe it is the point of the story, <laughs> but we'll find out. Say to her, it's fine. <laughs> So we get in the car. She says, I'm not sure. I said, it's fine. Please. It's fine. Because I knew that I wasn't putting it on great, but I also had this guy, super nice guy, no problem. But this guy kind of watching me judging my canoe putting on, and, my, and I got prideful about it. I got prideful about it. That's all that can be said. So we get on the highway because we're going to drive about five minutes on, not a highway, but a state road. And we get on the state road. We're going to drive about five, ten minutes on the state road. And we get the car gets up to about 65. And uh, 
And I knew the canoe was not going to become detached to the car because I had attached it well. And indeed, it did not become detached from the car, but it did come off of the top of the car, <laughs> flipped down and sort of just hung on the side of the car where it broke off the side view mirror, which now I've got to replace and it's going to cost me a couple hundred bucks to order one. And I mean, I broke the car. So we pulled over and of course... The guy who offered to help me put the car, canoe on right pulls over, pulls up right behind me and then says, uh, hey, man, I don't want to step on your toes, but I'd be glad to help you put it on if you want. And what am I going to say? But yes, I obviously need your help to put the canoe. It was like I, I have never more quickly gotten a comeuppance for my pride. I, I more quick, like it was an immediate, the Lord was like, no, this guy, we're not going to deal with that right now. This guy's pride we're going to handle. I have never more quickly gotten to come, I would deserve it to come up into my pride than I did when I broke the car with the canoe on Saturday. Um, wow. Man. So that was, that was just a little, that was a bonus episode preview of, uh, of, uh, of camp chat. Wow. Okay. <laughs> then I had to get back in the car and look at Kate who said, yeah, was it fine? And I had to say, no, it wasn't. You know, I mean, it was, I had to eat a lot of humble pie and I did. And I confessed it and I, and I, and I apologized to basically everybody there that I was being prideful about the thing and, and all of that. But I really, uh, my pride definitely came before the canoes fall on that one. Wow. Your experience of camping is very different to mine. Why? Is this camp chat? No. Well, you just give me a little. No. No. (laughs) Okay, we will be back next week for a serious episode and then for something we're calling Camp Chat. I'm going camping this weekend somewhere in Wyoming. If you want to know where, I don't tell you my camping spots. That's my business.